0: Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish
1: professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world.
2: Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. My guest today is Robert Bank, who is the president and CEO of American Jewish World Service, or AJWS. Robert joined AJWS in 2009 as its executive vice president to both grow and deepen the organization's impact in championing the rights of the world's poorest and most oppressed people. As a human rights attorney, activist, and experienced organizational leader, Robert has dedicated his professional life to fighting for the rights of women, people of color, immigrants, LGBT people, and people living with HIV AIDS. Prior to joining AJWS, he served in New York's municipal government and in the leadership of Gay Men's Health Crisis, one of the leading organizations in the world engaged in combating HIV and AIDS. In 2008, he played an instrumental role in the campaign to overturn the ban on HIV-positive people entering the United States and becoming U.S. citizens. Robert has received the Wasserstein Public Interest Fellowship from Harvard Law School, and his leadership has been recognized with the Lifetime Achievement Award from Gay Men's Health Crisis and the Partners in Justice Award from Avodah, the Jewish Service Corps. He is an advisor to The Conversation, Jewish in America, and he is on the board of Leading Edge, Alliance for Excellence in Jewish Leadership. I've asked Robert on the program today, and not only because of his impressive bio and experience, but also because he leads one of our largest Jewish organizations, not only here in North America, but around the world. And I'm curious to hear from him what his experience has been like in doing this work. Thank you so much for joining us today, Robert.
0: Thank you so much, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be on the program.
2: Great. So we'll begin as we always do. We heard a little bit about your experience and some of your background, but I'd love to hear from you how you found yourself so involved in AGWS and in this
1: position.
0: Michelle, that's a great question because so much of what I do today actually stems from where I grew up. I grew up in Cape Town, South Africa at the height of the apartheid regime, and I grew up in a progressive Jewish family in a Jewish community that was very together and thoughtful about what was being seen around us. And my parents were great role models for me, and a particularly a first cousin of mine who spoke out boldly about freedom and the right of people to vote and the freedom of the press, and the oppression of the South African government against blacks in South Africa. And I grew up in the 60s. That wasn't so much after the Holocaust and the formation of the State of Israel. And so I grew up in a very tight and powerful group of Jews who felt very, very strongly about values that expanded beyond the Jewish community, which is very much like what I do at American Jewish World Service today. I then immigrated to the United States. And when I came to the United States, I actually wanted to be a musician. I was a classical pianist and I went to the Juilliard School. And while at the Juilliard School, I was given the opportunity to bring the performing arts to underserved communities in New York City. And I would, together with other musicians, go and play in some of the poorest neighborhoods of New York City. It really opened my eyes to the fact that this country that I was coming to, this country where I was pursuing liberty and escaping from really a dictatorship, had so many problems of its own that had derived from many, many years of oppression, slavery, race relations, et cetera. So, I became interested in wanting to solve some of these problems. So I went to law school and at law school, I became more and more committed to what it would mean to actually work to change the law and change policy for people whose lives are most at risk, who are most vulnerable and who are persecuted. And then a little bit later, I started working in the area of HIV AIDS, which became a huge epidemic in the United States in the early 80s and the 90s. And I ran a legal services department at an organization, as you said, called Gay Men's Health Crisis. And I also started developing a deep interest in immigration policy and in public health more broadly. And this took me to my next stage in my career, which was very much wanting to apply some of the social policy work that I was doing and the change work I was doing in the context of being Jewish. And I was very fortunate to be invited to a program, which is now called the SELA program, which enabled Jews who were working in social change organizations to learn more about how to partner with, how to collectively fight to add more to the issues of social justice in the American Jewish community. And through that leadership program, I met terrific, incredible people who were running remarkable organizations, one of which is AJWS, and my predecessor, the really remarkable Ruth Messenger, who invited me to come and join her at this organization. And when I joined in 2009, we were a very different organization. We have, over the past nine years, become, I would say, more strategic more focused in our work, and more committed to making the kind of impact that has long-term sustainable change in the lives of people in 19 developing countries all around the world.
2: So when did you step into this particular role? I
0: became the CEO of American Jewish World Service in 2016 in July. Mm -hmm. So I've been in this position for just over two years.
2: So if you can, for our listening audience, give us a little background about what AGWS is, what it does, how it operates, all that wonderful stuff.
0: Great. So American Jewish World Service is an American Jewish organization that is an international development and human rights organization. And we fund organizations led by people of diverse backgrounds, people regardless of race, religion, ethnic background, who American Jews feel strongly that they want to support. So we give a platform for American Jews. To touch the lives of, to improve the lives of, to close the gap of opportunity for some of the most vulnerable and oppressed people in the world. And we do this by raising $40 million a year, of which we invest approximately $29 million a year annually in supporting 450 social justice organizations in 19 countries, Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean. And in each of these countries, we use the exact same business model and the same approach. And the approach is one rooted in empowerment. We call it a grass grass-rooted model because we believe that everything that in the communities we support that needs to be solved can actually be solved by the communities themselves, by courageous and smart activists and leaders in their own communities. They know what the problems are. They are best positioned to solve it. So we employ over 24 in-country experts who work in the countries in which we work together with our staff here in the United States. And they provide the grantees that we fund with the capacity to build their leadership, the infrastructure of their organizations, the programs that they're working on, and to accompany them as they do this work. American Jewish World Service works in three impact areas. The impact areas in which we work are, and this is what we hope to achieve through our work, and we see enormous success. Number one is changing the odds for women and girls and sexual minorities. The second is in the area of mitigating climate change on some of the world's most vulnerable communities. And the third area is strengthening democracy. And in these days, when there's such a challenge to democracy, repairing democracy. So those are the three impact areas in which we work, in which we try to change. What we seek to achieve is change in both policy and social norms in countries. For instance, we work in India. We have a large project in which we work to end child marriage in India to stop young girls from losing all potential in their lives by being married very, very young, or even not so young, frankly, even if they married at 15, 16, 17, not having the opportunities that the boys, their brothers have, which is opportunities for access to education, healthcare, reproductive health information, the ability to become independent and self-sufficient human beings. And that is a project that in which we are now currently working with 140,000 adolescent girls in India, in five states in India. And whenever you work in India, you're working with a population of 1.3 billion people. And so when you are working with girls in India, you are working with really hundreds of millions of girls and you can have enormous impact. The last area that we work in which is not exactly an impact area, but it's somewhere where we are responsive, is to disasters and to humanitarian disasters, natural disasters and humanitarian disasters. So a good example of what we're working on right now is that there is currently, as you and I are talking here today, there is a genocide going on in Western Burma where over a million refugees are now living, who are Burmese, are living north of Western Burma in Bangladesh, in squalid conditions. The monsoons are coming, and we are doing many things to try and solve this huge, violent problem of persecution against a religious ethnic minority, the Rohingya people of Western Burma. And this is very attractive to our supporters, because... We as Jews deeply understand what it means to be persecuted and oppressed. And, you know, Michelle, one of our founders of our organization was Eli Wiesel. And Eli Wiesel would always say that to be Jewish means to be part of the larger human family. He would also say, and I paraphrase, that we need to be in that place where people are being persecuted because of their religion, because of their ethnic background because of their political opinion. So I like to think I feel very, very warmly towards Elie Wiesel because I feel as if his death, which is two years ago this summer in July, was exactly the weekend, because over the 4th of July weekend, it was exactly the weekend that I assumed my position as president and CEO of HWS. And I just felt so humbled that this great man who really spoke about the Jewish obligation to care for others even though he had been so persecuted as a child during the Shoah, truly, truly speaks to me.
2: Well, that is quite a mandate that your organization has set up for yourselves in being this voice of the Jewish people in the world in these areas. And some areas like the crisis in Burma, which I think a lot of other organizations or group have said, what could we possibly, you know, do? How could we possibly influence this area? And it seems like AJWS has said whatever it is that we
0: can do. Yes. And I just want to add to that, if you don't mind, Michelle, that it's not just AJWS because we believe in working in partnership. We have built a coalition of over 250 rabbis and influential Jewish leaders in the United States. We have a strong group of over 10 organizations who we meet with regularly. As a matter of fact, it's very prescient that we are talking today at the end of summer In 2018, because almost to the day last year in Burma, the Burmese military pushed out over 700,000 people to Bangladesh. And the group that we are working with is marking this awful anniversary in which not only were they pushed out, women were raped, children were killed. Men were killed. Houses were burnt down. And it sounds very familiar to the Jewish experience of pogroms, actually. And we are together commemorating that day. And we have partners who, in the Jewish community, are really our brothers and sisters in this fight. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to share this work that way.
2: Yeah, it's always the Jewish community part, Those partnerships that allow us to do what we're doing. So how has this work changed? Let's even just say over the last 10 years or since you started your involvement with the organization, what has shifted as far as just your work, but also maybe touching upon since, you know, 2016, because some of your work is a little on the political side, although not completely, you know, US based political, maybe a little bit how you've had to navigate that or and just general sort of climate of the world, how things have changed in relation to the way you do your work.
0: Well, I'm going to start with the first part about what's changed in the organization the past, say, five or six years. And the first thing that we did a couple of years ago was decide that we were too broadly spread out. You know, there are nearly 200 countries in the world. It would be very hard to work in all of them. And we've made some very distinct choices about where we think we can have the most impact. And so a couple of years ago, we moved from 36 countries where we were granting to 19 countries. And this has been very... Are very much more effective around truly measuring our impact. And we have built a very strong division at American Jewish World Service called Strategic Learning, Research and Evaluation. And it does all of those things extremely well. It works very closely with our program division and our in country staff and grantees all over the world to evaluate our work, to learn from the evaluations about how to shift strategy. And to develop the model that we use in country, which is very much not only do we work at the grassroots level, but we work at the grass-rooted level, meaning that we believe that the grassroots is critically important. I'll give you an example of our country today and connect somewhat to the political environment. So in our country, a grassroots example perhaps would be the students from Parkland, right, Mm -hmm. who are mobilizing to try and bring more awareness to the issue of guns in this country and the violence that it causes. So that's the grassroots. But then you want to take that effort up to the subnational level in country, or you want to take it to the national level. You even want to take it to the global level. And so we have really realized that our model is a tiered grant-making model in which we fund at the grassroots, but we are always committed to moving up the ladder To making change at the national level in the countries we work in. And then once we achieve the policy win, to actually come back to the grassroots, to make sure that laws that are changed are then implemented. Mm -hmm. So I would say we've become much more strategic about our grant making. We partner even more closely with our leaders, activists, and social movements that we support. And we do a lot of work together with them about devising new strategies based on evaluation. Right. So that's one serious change.
2: And this was a new department that was created?
0: This department was created in 2013. Oh, great. We've now been working for five years and we've got an analysis of, you know, the past years of our evaluation that led us into the strategies that we've developed for the next three
1: years. So that's... Yeah,
2: Yeah, that's an area I think a lot of organizations overlook is the, especially granting organization, the evaluation and the measuring and... The not-so-sexy data analysis and the background to really make sure your decisions are rooted in the results of your work. That's
0: fantastic. Absolutely. So, you know, we are very committed to evidence, especially because we are looking at human rights change. And to measure human rights change, some people say it's very difficult. I'm actually not so sure that's true. Obviously, it takes a long time, but for instance, to give you a very practical example, we have recently instituted a tool that looks at all of the policies, regulations, laws that we are trying to shift together with our leaders and grantees in the developing world. And we monitor them according to what the goal is, how we have mobilized people in that community or in that city or in that country. And we keep track of what it was that led to the success in one country that we can learn from in another country, for instance. So that's just an interesting example because oftentimes people say that it's very difficult to measure advocacy. It is difficult to measure advocacy, but it certainly can be done.
2: It seems like a difficult decision to move from 30 some odd countries that you're serving to 19 countries, especially I'm sure when you have leaders and staff that are invested in all of that work to be able to make the case that we want to do less better than more is maybe what we've done traditionally. So I'll let you continue, but it's great to hear those really Really hard decisions being made founded on some evaluation and research and understanding of your work. That's great.
0: Well, thanks. And I think it's all about, you know, how you phase out from those countries and how you make sure that the grantees you've been supporting have an opportunity to be introduced to other funders. And we mm. certainly made that commitment as well. To move to the political context today, well, obviously we are living in an extraordinary time. We're living in a very, very turbulent time in this country. And I'm sure we are all, Grateful for any moment in which we can actually have a little bit of a breather from it. However, our role at American Jewish World Service is to be persistent and resilient around the impact that the administration has on the people that we are here to serve. And the people we are here to serve are people in developing countries. And the United Mm -hmm. States government has an enormous role to play in that regard. So yes, our commitment to ensuring that the United States government lives up to its moral leadership around foreign policy and the best practices for foreign policy and the human rights of those people who live outside of this country is very important to us always and critically important right now. Because I think it would be hard to argue that we have right now are seen as a country that cares deeply for people outside of our country. And that's the role of American Jewish World Service, to advocate to the administration, to the president, to the cabinet, to wherever we can in the United States, given the situation, to support the goals of American Jewish World Service. So going back to something I said earlier, we have legislation that together with others, we are... Hoping will be passed in the Senate right now. It is called the Burma Human Rights and Freedom Act. Mm. And our office in Washington, our Government Affairs Office, which is constantly working on what the issues are in the United States that will impact those in developing countries, is working very hard with members of the administration, with senators in the Senate, to move this piece of legislation forward. This is a difficult time for moving any legislation forward. Mm -hmm. But there is actually some support for this legislation based on the fact that lives are at enormous risk. This is a life and death issue. And there is some energy for bipartisan support for this piece of legislation. Have we reached success yet? No. But do we continue to fight? Yes. I recently had a meeting with my staff and some other Jewish organizations with the ambassador for international religious affairs in the administration. And he is actually very sympathetic towards trying to have the United States impose military sanctions on those who are responsible for this genocide in Burma, for this ethnic cleansing. And actually two weeks ago, we had some success and a number of military officials were sanctioned under what's called the Magnitsky Act. Even in difficult times, one must never give up hope that you can have success on the policy front. Now, more broadly speaking, with respect to the tone that emanates from this administration, hatred of others and about just because of who they are. Right. You know, I just had the good fortune to travel with my colleagues from HIAS and from the anti-defamation, the southern border, just earlier this week, to witness the impact of immigration laws and how they tear apart families and how they are so unjust and unfair. And on Tuesday this week, I was actually in Mexico and met with families who are being treated basically like criminals, but who all they want is to come to the United States to make a better life, very much like our ancestors did. And, you know, it was John F. Kennedy who said that this is a nation of immigrants and many of the people we work with in the developing world countries that we work in want to immigrate to the United States. But also, Michelle, the truth of the matter is that most people want to stay in the country in which they were born. They just wish that the country in which they were born were not so violent, were not run by drug cartels, was not at war, was etc. And the United States should always be a safe haven for those who are fleeing persecution. And we are living in a world today in which Over 65 million people are migrants. They are moving from one place to another, not only because of persecution, but because of climate change. Mm -hmm. They are climate refugees. The places they live no longer have water, or the places they live have too much water. Right. So... We at HWS are really committed to solving these problems in country. So it's a great privilege that we have, even during these turbulent times in the United States, to try and persuade not only those who run this country, but American Jews to care... As they do for those who are suffering in other countries, because if we can strengthen civil society in Mexico or Kenya or Sri Lanka, then the opportunities and chances for improving the lives of millions of people in those countries is huge and actually will lessen the burden of immigration and migration. So, you know, it's a very, very difficult time for the world, and I'm very hopeful that the Jewish community, which is generally speaking a community that is committed to tikkun olam, is a community that fights for the rights of those who are oppressed. We are a small tribe in a big world. We actually put out a video. One of our beloved board members used that language recently. Jews are a small tribe in a big world. and. Because we are people who know from our own Jewish history what it means to be persecuted, what it means to be treated in less than human, we have an enormous opportunity. And I would say that we have an obligation. I don't only think we have an opportunity. I think that those of us who are privileged have an opportunity to fight for those who are less privileged.
2: Wonderful. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Before returning to my conversation with Robert, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next podcast episode. Nancy Kaufman is the Chief Executive Officer of the National Council of Jewish Women, or NCJW, who discusses with me her career in building bridges between the Jewish community and the non-Jewish world, and how her experience has changed when viewing the work through her gender-specific organization. Here is a clip from our upcoming conversation.
1: So we're looking at, okay, what's our appropriate role as a Jewish women's organization? Because it's not about us. What are we going to do about it within our organization? It's going to be, what are we going to, what's our voice going to be in the broader world? So it's an interesting thing. It's kind of was a relief to come work in a women's organization. So I didn't have to have, you know, men, you know, pinching my cheeks and tushy anymore, you know, but they didn't do that much to me because I just told them to go take a pipe. But for the younger women in the... In the organization, it was still, you know, the donor issues are very, very big issue. And the sad thing is there is, you know, it it is cultural. It was a culture that was allowed to thrive and that both professionals and volunteers, you know, were part of perpetuating the culture. And until people started standing up and saying, no, that's not acceptable behavior and took it seriously, supervisors, you know bosses, chairs of boards. It wasn't going to change. It was cute. It was funny. It was your grandpa. It was your right. father, you know, it was kind of that's what Jewish men did. You know, they they made stupid comments. And then you have a president. It's kind of this is the one area where I think Trump has helped because he's so outrageous, I think there's been a reaction to the fact that it's becoming mainstream. At the same time as it's coming mainstream, you know, we have this movement against it.
2: Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Nancy in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Robert. So I kind of want to, I'm very interested in hearing from your experience in doing this work around the world. You talk about all these different areas and all these different ambassadors and policy changes. What's been the reaction or the difficulty in doing this work under the representation of representing American Jews? Does that make your work more difficult than if you were just, you know, world service or if you were trying to do this work in a different context? Does it matter that you're doing it Jews?
0: Thank you. That's a beautiful question. And yes, the answer is yes, absolutely. And it's the most powerful thing about this American Jewish organization is that we are Jewish and that we are inspired by the Jewish tradition of social justice, the Jewish tradition of justice justice period. And that we have this opportunity to do this work in partnership with those of other faiths. And, you know, there's that very sacred moment. I think it is Lord Jonathan Sachs, actually, the former, you know, chief rabbi of the UK, who I've heard speak about that sacred moment between people of different faiths. You know, we as Jews work with people in 19 developing countries. Mm -hmm. In each of those 19 developing countries, whether it is in Central and South America, where people are oftentimes deeply connected to their Christian faith, whether it is in Asia, where people are deeply connected to their Hindu faith, to being Muslim, to being Jain, whether they are people in Africa who are oftentimes rooted, all of their work is rooted in Christianity or in Islam. There's something truly sacred. It's truly holy work in which people of different faiths come together to solve the world's problems. I think that American Jews are welcomed into these spaces in ways that are just beautiful to see. Part of the privilege of my position as president and CEO of American Jewish World Service is that at least three or four times a year, I travel with those who I like to call our philanthropic partners, our investors those who believe strongly in our mission, I travel with them to meet these courageous activists, these leaders, these organizations in Kenya or in India or in Nicaragua. And that moment of meeting of whether it's 10 or 15 or 25 American Jews with this community in any of the countries in which we work is a true coming together of brothers and sisters in a way that is magical. It is absolutely magical. Sometimes the communities in which we work, because we don't tend to only work, we tend to work with some of the most marginalized people in the world. So that means we will travel for four hours in a bus on a very, very bumpy road to go to a rural community And by the time we arrive, we are sort of greeted with, you know, open arms, a dance or something. So few people have taken the time to actually come to this community. And what's so immensely powerful, Michelle, is that sometimes, and I'm going to say that most times, the communities that we visit with, of course, they know that the funding is from American Jewish World Service. And they might have met a staff member of ours who has come to support them in the work and evaluate and learn together but they sometimes have never met Jewish people in this scale, you know, 25 Jewish people right. coming from America. And it's an enormous joy because what happens is, you know, there's a song in Swahili and then we sing, you know, and we have basically realized this very special thing that American Jewish World Service allows us to constantly learn, which is that we are all the same. All human beings are essentially the same. We want the same things. We want family, a sense of security, opportunity for the future. We want love. We want meaning. We want employment that makes us feel good. We want financial resources that allows us to live in a world in a comfortable way. And, you know, almost usually within minutes, there is this deep connection that happens, even though we sometimes don't speak the same language. So it is a cross-cultural exchange. There's no question about it. And I believe that HWS does serve as an ambassador for the Jewish people all over the world, because what we are saying is that we are a tribe that doesn't only care about ourselves. Mm -hmm. We are a tribe that cares about you. We are a tribe that understands that if you live in a slum in Nairobi, or if you live in abject poverty in rural Rajasthan, or if you've been pushed off your land where you grow your food, that we're going to stand by you. So it's the values that matter. It's the values of goodness. My colleague and good friend, Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum, recently said when talking about the times that we're living in in the 21st century. She said, be the reason people believe in the goodness of people.
2: That's beautiful.
0: Right? I mean, didn't she say it all? You know, and each one of us have this opportunity. And I think it's exceptional when, as a Jewish people, that's what we're known for. Mm Mm-hmm by others. And it's something to aspire to every single day, one-on-one with everyone we meet on the street. And what an amazing opportunity, particularly for a people that was spread all over the world. And in many ways, you know, we have the state of Israel, but still many, many people are spread all over the world. What an amazing way to connect to the larger world as a Jewish organization that is in countries connecting to that larger world. I think it's truly, I take my hat off to those who founded this organization in 1985, I must right. say, I think that they have provided tens of thousands of Jews in America, the opportunity to become this warm, diverse community that is embracing of everyone, whatever denomination or background you come from as a Jew. And then... Also inviting in people to be supporting this organization who are fellow travelers of Jews, you know, or allies of Jews who are, someone used the word the other day, Jew adjacent. (laughs) 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 People who love our mission who aren't Jewish. Right. To be part of it.
2: and Especially when you talk about it as values-based, you know, that's... Yeah. Have to in that framework of religion if you're promoting a certain set of values that other people share.
0: And I want to say that I think, you know, American Jewish World Service, I know that many of my colleagues who are people I respect with the utmost, utmost love and appreciation for what they do. I think we all have our piece to play, right? Mm -hmm. I think what's beautiful about the Jewish community is that, you know, we are the organization that works to ensure that some of the most vulnerable and oppressed people in the world have their human rights recognized, and valued. There are other organizations that are working on doing amazing things in the United States. There are Jewish organizations that are doing incredible work about building leadership in the Jewish community. There are organizations that are doing incredible work in Israel. There are organizations that are, you know, really responsive to poor Jews that live in the United States, all over the world, and in Israel. There are people who are doing just so much remarkable work in the Jewish community, given its size. And I just feel so honored and proud that I get to lead this organization that has this particular opportunity to offer. I sometimes say American Jewish World Service. So the actual origin of that name, I will tell you, is that one of the founders, someone I respect enormously, a gentleman by the name of Larry or Lawrence Simon, Started this organization in 1985 with another person called Larry or Lawrence, Larry (laughs) Larry Phillips, the two Larrys. And then Elie Wiesel came in a little later. And Larry Simon, who I'm so pleased is well and healthy and lives in Boston and teaches international development at Brandeis University. He named the organization Mm -hmm. and he knew he wanted to create a platform for American Jews to proudly help and support those in the world who are most vulnerable, who are not Jewish. And Larry Simon said, I knew I wanted to do that. So I knew the first two words of the name were going to be American Jewish. Those were the people that we were trying to sort of, you know, enlist to support Mm -hmm. this mission. And he said he didn't know what the other two words were going to be, but he knew that it was about the developing world and about the poorest people in the world. And it's interesting that he used to listen every day. He was an international aid worker at the time at an organization called Oxfam, which most people have heard of. And he used to listen every day to the BBC World Service. uh, (laughs) The the UK-based radio. So talking to a person who does radio, I, I thought you'd be impressed to know that our organization was actually named because Larry Simon liked the idea that you could... You know, spread the word. So he called it American Jewish World Service. And what I think about the name is that it gives American Jews the opportunity to serve the world. And that's how I think about the name. And, you know, that's our particular singular mission. And I have been blessed to inherit an organization as its leader. That is so not only about me, right? It's about tens of thousands of American Jewish supporters. It's about a board that is remarkable, absolutely remarkable. I have learned so much from the wisdom and leadership of the board members of AJWS and a staff that... Has so much talent, some days I just have to pinch myself.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, we've also been, I'm very, you know, talking about Jewish communal life. What's beautiful about American Jewish World Service is we're 33 years old this year. And so many people that I meet in the American Jewish community have traveled through American Jewish World Service. They have worked here and then they have moved on to another wonderful organization. They have developed some of their skills here, they have brought their skills here. And you know, I feel very strongly about that. You saw in my bio that I currently serve on the board of Leading Edge, and Leading Edge is a Jewish organization. I think at some point she interviewed Gully Cooks, who hey, leads that you. organization, and she's a powerhouse of an executive director of that organization. And she, together with the board, and together with thousands upon thousands of people, are working to look at you know what makes organizations, Jewish organizations, being great places to work, and. You know, that's something I'm deeply committed to as a CEO. I'm constantly looking at the culture of our organization, constantly looking at are we living up in our own culture to the values of the organization. And if I could answer that question with an immediate yes, I would definitely not be telling the truth. Right. Because it's not that we don't aspire to do that, but it's, you know, it's everyday work. As I sometimes say to the staff at AWS, you know, living up to our values and building a culture that is... Resilient and rigorous and generous and kind and impactful is unfortunately daily work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like we we solved that. Now we can tie that one up with a bow. Right. And we can move on. <laughs> right, and that's what's dynamic about organizational life, and that's what I love mm-hmm. about running an organization and leading an organization together with others. Because I think what's so powerful about it is that things shift and change. You know, as people say, the only constant thing is change, and different people come into the system. Some board members leave, new board members arrive. We develop partnerships with different organizations and different funding sources. We move from one strategy to another. And I think if an organization can hold on to that kind of innovation and agility, that will keep it successful because otherwise it becomes pretty stolid and uninventive. And it's not looking at external trends. So that's what keeps me incredibly excited about being in this position. It's the board, it's the staff, it's the supporters, it's the activists in country, it's the diversity of what we do, it's the large canvas of the world that we talk about here at AJWS every day in the context of living in the United States.
2: Well, let's talk about you for a quick minute because sure. the work is so wonderful and I'm glad that you touched upon, you know, the wonderful people you get to work with. But I'm assuming that there is a life for you outside of AJWS with friends and family and hobbies. So what are some ways that you keep it all balanced? So you mentioned that you do a lot of traveling. Obviously, your time is very demanded by people like myself who <laughs> want to hear from you from the organization. What are some tools or ways that you kind of keep balance between your work and
1: your life?
0: You know, work life balance for a CEO is always a complicated question, and I'm appreciative for it. You know, I think, Michelle, that the things that give me great joy outside of my passion for my work is my partner, Alan Cohen, who also works as a Jewish communal leader. And he has been by my side for 18 years and is one of the most compassionate, empathic, and truly brilliant people that I know. So I am very, very fortunate. I have a wonderful family. Tonight, I'm fortunate enough to be celebrating my father's 87th birthday with my entire family of brothers and nieces and nephews, and etc. I'm so grateful to my parents for having made this move to come to America now 40 years ago. But they have been an enormous support of my work. I also have a person who loves to be outside. I just returned from an amazing cycling trip for a week with my partner in Maine, where we rode up to 40 miles a day. And so I love the sort of feeling of physical exercise. I love being in nature. And you only get so
2: many months to do that out here. So
0: yes, yes, (laughs) yes. yes.
2: Opportunities when you can.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And I'm a person who very much also loves reading and the arts and creative people. And I love living in New York City. I'm very, very, you know, I grew up in a very, very small town called Cape Town, right at the tip of Africa. And while there's a lot of energy and creativity and certainly enough political strife to keep anyone busy, it's not quite the same as living in New York City, which has something for absolutely everyone and is, I think, one of the most amazing melting pots on this planet. So because I didn't grow up here, I feel as if I have an enormous appreciation of the culture, of the capacity of so many millions of people to actually live together in harmony Mm -hmm. most of the time. And I know I live a very privileged life, One of the things I love most about my life is that I get to be grateful for the people, very much like in my job, that I meet on a day to day basis that are kind. I had an experience this morning that made my day. I was running late for a dentist appointment. So you would have thought that I would have taken the subway because you would have thought that would have made it faster. But in fact, I decided to take a taxi. Mm. And it turned out that I made the right choice and I can afford a taxi. So I took the taxi. I got out in front of my very large dentist's office building in Manhattan. And I ran into the building and I heard someone calling me and saying, gentlemen, sir, 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 are you in this taxi? Are you in this taxi? You have, you've left something, you've left something. And, you know, the cab driver got out of his car in busy New York this morning at like 8am. I had left my credit card. And this kind person Had chased after me with my credit card to find me. And he's not nearly as lucky as I am. He is an immigrant too, and he is, I'm sure, not as privileged as I am in my life. And I just, he could be privileged in many, many other ways that are much more than my privilege in the sense of he's who he is. But I just thought that was such a sort of beautiful kind of moment in Manhattan of millions of people who are actually really out to do what Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum tells us to do, what I said earlier, which is, you know, be the reason that people believe in the goodness of people. I try to balance my work and my life in the same way about getting enormous inspiration from others. And I feel very blessed.
2: Yeah, it is definitely a humbling experience being in New York City. There's the, the pluses and the minuses, but the fact that everyone can live and work and be together, and as you say, mostly in harmony, I'm always surprised in the subway, just how many people fit on a platform, and there's no guard, there's no rail, there's nothing between you and you know, the tracks, and yet everyone's safe, and everyone gets on, and everything keeps moving, and you know, no one's really out to harm anyone else, and it's a wonderful display of humanity living in the city. We've touched upon a lot of different things, a lot of different areas, your personal story, your work. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention to our listeners about any of those things that we've discussed?
0: Yeah, I think I'd probably like to end by saying enormous humbling and privileged experience it has been to be the president and CEO of American Jewish World Service. I have met some of the most courageous activists on this planet today, and I have seen the incredible difference they make in the lives of millions and millions of people. And that is something that I will always be grateful for. And they couldn't do it. There's no way they could be doing this work without the generous support of the investors and philanthropic partners that support American Jewish World Service. And... That is something that humbles me equally, because I see this beautiful, beautiful partnership between American Jews who make decisions to support financially people they don't know, Mm -hmm. people they've never met, people that they know enough to know need their support, and that they trust American Jewish World Service to find the smartest the most passionate the most strategic leaders and organizations in the world to make that change that's profound and makes me feel just enormously grateful
2: hopefully we can all find such meaning in our work well
0: Michelle I want to thank you for lifting up so many people so many of my colleagues in this work that we do all of us and it's so meaningful because you know there is a wonderful quote that's Someone called, and I believe it's Robert Bornstein, but it could be David Bornstein. It's David Bornstein.
2: He wrote, <laughs> he wrote
0: a book called How to Change the World. David says, the problems scream and the solutions whisper. I think that's a very profound quote because I think it's people like you that actually raise up the solutions. Right? So journalism, I mean, the opportunity to actually Get the word out to people about things that actually work in this world, in a world where there's so much clutter about what doesn't work and so much hate is so important. And, you know, looking at you on the screen with your headphones, (laughs) no, no, it reminds me so much of some of the organizations that we fund in countries all over the world. And I'm having a sort of flashback to childhood because I grew up listening to radio. Mm-hmm. because I didn't have TV. I know it sounds strange. It wasn't that my parents were good and didn't want us to watch TV. They might've been good, but it wasn't that they wouldn't right. watch TV. It was that when I grew up, South Africa didn't have television. And it's a complicated reason why they wanted to keep out the external world so that they could perpetuate its essential dictatorship. So I always appreciated the listening and radio and, and podcasts. I still love podcasts. And I think that in many of the countries in which we work, in rural areas, the way people communicate is through public radio, through radio. And many of the people who work in communications, they aspire to do what you're doing. They aspire to, there's a woman I can think of right now who I met in Uganda last year. She's incredible, incredible woman who runs something called the green radio. And the green radio is, is teaching people about environmental protection, teaching them how to make honey from bees. Wow. This is access to information, right? Teaching, them how to make sure that people can't encroach upon their land, teaching them how to find seeds that will last for longer than one year. And she invites people to come on her station. And oftentimes when I visit the developing world, I go in the most interesting rural areas that you could come across and I see their little, quite sophisticated recording studio where... They are showing me how many people they are reaching through Mm -hmm. this public radio mechanism. So, you know, to go back to the problem screen, but the solutions whisper, I think part of the problem is that there's not education, there's not access to knowledge, there's not a way for people to learn about things that can make a difference in their lives and things that are actually the good outcomes of people putting a lot of work into making change. So I'm going to end there because it's really about why I'm so grateful to people like you who are actually educating others about what people are doing and giving the opportunity to have access to information and to learn.
2: Well, it is my privilege to be able to do this and have conversations with wonderful leaders like yourself. So thank you so much for participating.
0: Well, it was wonderful to meet you, Michelle. Take care. Be well. Shabbat shalom.
2: Change-making is difficult work. Policy making is difficult work. Grant making is difficult work. And AJWS takes these difficult areas and makes them look easy. Among the multitude of other activities they do, AJWS is serving as the voice for the American Jewish people around the world, ensuring that we have a collective place at the table for which to influence how our values are expressed in the world. What an amazingly strong and positive place for our community to be. In addition to effecting positive change, the immense value that these efforts are done in the name of the Jewish people for others who likely had never met a Jewish person before only serves to spread goodwill and positive feelings about what it means to be Jewish. I'm deeply grateful to AJWS and its supporters for making this type of engagement in the world a priority and I'm encouraged by Robert's leadership to continue these efforts in the most impactful way possible. Our program has been funded in part by the Jim Joseph Foundation, our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and our fiscal sponsors Jewish Creativity International. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, podcast articles, how to start your own podcast, and more on our website, it's who you know, the podcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for
1: listening and have a wonderful week.